Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, King and Finance Minister pleads not guilty to 15 corruption charges and Malawi's former president offers to mediate between protesters and the electoral body. In economics news, IMF to begin process of selecting its next managing director and in sports news, South Africa's sports minister calls for professional netball league. The first up, the news with Anne A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The U.S. State Department says it has imposed visa restrictions on Nigerians who it says were involved in trying to undermine democracy in Nigeria's presidential and parliamentary elections this year. The department did not name the individuals or say how many were affected by the visa restrictions, but says those affected by the sanctions would be those who were responsible for violence or corruption during the elections. President Muhammadu Buhari won a second term in February in an election marred by delays, logistical glitches and violence. There has been a riot at a prison in Yaoundé, the capital of Cameroon, where many people accused of being separatist rebels from the Anglophone regions are being detained. Inmates at Kondengi Maximum Security Prison live-streamed on Facebook the initial protest from their mobile phones. They were chanting pro-independence slogans calling for an amnesty for all people arrested during the three-year separatist conflict and demanding an immediate ceasefire. Overnight violence erupted and parts of the prison were set on fire. Cameroonian security forces restored control after shooting in the air and firing tear gas into the prison. A policeman and three villagers have been killed in a gunfight between law and forces and locals accused of illegally fishing on Lake Victoria. The governor of Tanzania's Mwanza region, John Mongela, told ITV television that a fight broke out between local fishermen and a police unit battling illegal fishing. Tanzanian authorities have stepped up patrols on the lake because of problems with overfishing. Last year, the International Union for Conservation of Nature said plant and animal life in the lake was being decimated, with 20% of species facing extinction due to climate change, industrial and agricultural pollution and poor fishing practices. The World Wildlife Fund has commended Singapore for its largest ever seizure of smuggled ivory after it impounded a haul of nearly nine tons of contraband tusks from an estimated 300 elephants. The ivory, estimated to be worth 12.9 million U.S. dollars, was heading to Vietnam through Singapore from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The haul also contained the third major seizure of pangolin scales in Singapore this year. The pangolin is one of the most trafficked mammals in the world. The WWF's Paul Dionelis says the seizures indicates the ongoing pressure these species are facing. We do have to give credit to the Singaporean authorities. They've intercepted this shipment and this is not the first time this has happened in Singapore. Over the last 12 to 18 months we've seen them seize somewhere in the region of 40 tonnes of pangolin scales. So whilst that is a testament to their efforts to target traffickers, it does indicate that this is an ongoing pressure that these species are facing. 
And finally, Boris Johnson will take over as Britain's new Prime Minister as the country faces its biggest political crisis in decades over Brexit. Johnson has already been in discussions with colleagues of a senior cabinet posts. He has promised that the UK will leave the European Union by the end of October, come what may. The new Conservative leader takes over from Theresa May and will meet with the Queen of Buckingham Palace later in the day. The BBC's Laura Kunzberg reports. For any incoming Prime Minister, the first big task is to appoint their cabinet. If you like, the cabinet's like the index to the book the Prime Minister wants to write about themselves. And the biggest thing to look out for is how many Brexiteers will he move into senior positions? Because after three years of angst, today was the day that the Brexiteers finally took charge. A divided party still, a parliament that's been stuck in stalemate with no real sense of any dramatic movement, however hopeful and optimistic Boris Johnson says he feels right now. And that's the news. Headlines at 7.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Kenya's Finance Minister Henry Rottich has pleaded not guilty in court to charges of corruption after spending the night in police custody. He is accused of flouting procurement procedures and awarding a contract worth more than 450 million US dollars for the construction of two dams to an Italian firm, CMC De Ravina. The company has also denied any wrongdoing. James Shimangula reports. Shortly after Kenya's Finance Minister... Henry Rotich denied the charges. He was released on a bond of 500,000 U.S. dollars, equivalent to 50 million Kenya shillings, pending mention of his case on the 8th of next month, ahead of setting a hearing date. The rest of the accused persons were freed on bonds, ranging from 20 million Kenya shillings and 30 million each. According to Kenya's Deputy Prosecutor, Nurudini Haji, the country's national treasury negotiated a commercial facility, increasing the amount of the construction of the two dams to 680 million United States dollars, which is 164.5 million dollars more than the amount that was to be paid for the construction of two hydroelectric dams in the country's Rift Valley region west of the capital Nairobi. Before a teacher and more than a dozen other accused persons were released on bail, Kiyoko Kilokome, one of his 15 lawyers, had argued before court that his clients deserved to be released on bail. We are not aware of any compelling reason why the accused persons cannot be admitted to bail or bond. There are compelling reasons why the accused persons should immediately be admitted to bail. The first accused person has fully cooperated with the investigative agencies. He made each and every document they requested available. The first accused has basically done everything that a suspect can possibly do to help investigators. Defense lawyer Kilukume had contended that Kenya's constitution empowers courts to free accused persons on bail so long as they promise to be present during their trial. Your Honor, we are traveling a very well-trodden path under Article 49 of the Constitution. The only primary and important consideration for the court before it admits anyone to bail is whether or not they will turn up for their trial. We are traveling a very well-trodden path under Article 49 of the Constitution. The only primary and important consideration for the court 
before it admits anyone to bail is whether or not they will turn up for their trial. Your Honor, my instructions are each and every one of the accused persons who have taken plea before you will attend court from trial when it commences to the very end. Kilokumi acknowledged that charges preferred against the accused persons were of a serious nature. The accused persons face serious charges, serious allegations, but as a matter of law, these remain nothing else but allegations. And allegations to face anyone is nothing else but a misfortune. It's just a misfortune that they are facing these grave allegations. The Constitution presumes all these accused persons to be innocent. These are innocent persons under the law who seek the court to release them on reasonable conditions so that their liberties and freedoms are not curtailed. In his submission on behalf of Kenya's Director of Public Prosecution, in short DPP, State Counsel Taib Ali Taib addressed the court on the urgency of hearing the case against Finance Minister Rotich and others. The DPP wants to get the job done as quickly as is humanly possible. We are ready and willing to proceed and cooperate with this court to ensure that we finalize this case as quickly as possible and we will be urging the court when granting hearing dates to give us consecutive continuous dates so that we can finalize the same. Taib assured the court that the case against Rotich and others is strong to the extent that it stands to sustain a conviction. The DPP has been meticulous and has ensured that he has put together a case that will convince this court to return convictions against the accused person. Our case is not that the accused persons are innocent, even though the court and the law presumes them to be innocent until proven guilty. To the contrary, and as can be expected, our case is that the accused persons have not been at their stations working for the public good of the citizens of this great Republic of Kenya. Our case is that they have been at their workstation, employing their time, working for their own personal benefit. That was Taib Ali Taib, State Counsel in the Office of Kenya's Director of Public Prosecution. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The judgment has been reserved in South Africa's Public Enterprise Minister Pravin Gordon's court application to review and set aside the public protector Busisiwe Mkwebani's adverse findings against him. Gordon brought an urgent application to the Pretoria High Court to have Mkwebani's findings against him suspended until a judicial review of the report had been completed. President Sil Ramaphosa supports Gordon in his application, while the economic freedom fighter supports the public protector and and is opposing Gordon's application. Maluti Obusing reports. Gordon wants the court to set aside the public protector's order for him to be sanctioned until a judicial review has been completed. He has denied that the intelligence team set up to investigate tax evasion at SARS during his tenure as commissioner was a rogue unit. In her report, the public protector found that the establishment of the unit was unlawful and that Goran had violated the constitution. Goran's lawyer, Wing Tringhoff, says the public protector's remedial action has serious implications. The essence of the case is this. The public protector, without any opportunity to the applicant or anybody else to comment on her remedial orders, issued remedial orders which seriously affect the applicant and its remedial orders against the president and against the speaker and against the minister, the NDPP and the commissioner of police. On the way, she believes they should perform their functions. President Cyril Ramaphosa's lawyer, advocate Matthew Chaskalson, was in support of Goran's review application, telling the High Court that the illegality of the remedial steps ordered by Mkwebane are questionable. Advocate Charles Carlson argued that the president cannot take steps on an issue that is being challenged in court. He says the legality of the report is in dispute. The attitude of the president, lady, is that he has not himself made any findings of misconduct against Minister Gordon. 
The findings that have been made have been made by the public protector. The legality of those findings is subject to challenge by Minister Cordon. There is obviously a bona fide and serious dispute over the legality of the findings. This is not a flippant challenge. It's a, it's a challenge. Hesman doesn't necessarily say that the challenge is correct or will succeed, but it is, it is obviously a bona fide and serious challenge. Meanwhile, Godan's lawyer, Win Trengov, argued that the South African Revenue Services never gathered intelligence on people under Godan's watch. He further stated that the law permits institutions to gather information as long as it is not about the national security or the stability of the republic. He emphasized that it was their view that Godan broke no law while in charge of SARS almost a decade ago. It defines departmental intelligence as intelligence about any threat or potential threat to the national security and stability of the Republic. So, what the prohibition means is, if you are a department required by law to perform functions in relation to national security, then you may not gather departmental intelligence, that is, intelligence about the security of the Republic, in a covert manner. Well, SARS never gathered departmental intelligence. Advocate Tabani Masuku, representing the public protector, argued against the language used by the applicant to have the report reviewed and set aside. Masuku says the office of the public protector is under attack. What is she supposed to do? Can she walk confidently in the streets of South Africa without being called an enabler of state capture? Why would anybody want to bring a complaint to the public protector so the public protector can act in accordance with the constitutional powers to investigate complaints and to report on them and to fashion remedial action. Can she do that now with, a, with the confidence and the independence and the dignity that the constitution says she must have? She cannot. The economic freedom fighters lawyer advocate Tembeka Nukaitobi told the High Court that there is no basis in Godan's claims that there was no rogue unit at SARS during his tenure as a commissioner. So with respect, there can be no basis for the allegation that there, in fact, was no evidence of a rogue unit. The evidence was overwhelming on the basis of what was found by the public protector. And there can be no basis of the allegation that, oh, well, if it existed, Mr. Godin didn't know about it, because the public protector has dealt with that allegation. She found that on the probabilities, he must have known, because he was involved in the initial conversations about locating the unit within the NIA. Judgment will be delivered at a date that parties will agree on, but before 4 August, because that's when the 30-day deadline set by public protector expires. I am Maluti Ubuseng in Pretoria. Public sympathy for South Africa's public protector advocate Busasuim Kribani is gaining momentum. This as some have come forward requesting financial support for the public protector who is to pay 900,000 rands in legal fees. On Monday, the Constitutional Court echoed a judgment by the North Gauteng High Court in setting aside her report into the Reserve Bank and APSA Bank Corp, holding Kribani personally liable for the cost. Abongile Dumako reports. Public protector advocate Busisiwe Mkwebane has lost yet another court challenge. She's been back and forth as some of her reports are subjected to legal scrutiny. A group calling themselves Hands Off the Public Protector has come out seeking for financial assistance for her. A bank account has been communicated on social media requesting South Africans to assist the public protector. Here is the coordinator, Tabum Tsweni. We launched a campaign to assist the public protector to pay off the cost that the, the, uh, the court directed her to pay. And we've received an um, enormous response from the public. Everyone is pitching in. I mean, as little as 88 rands yesterday were received through that campaign so that we can, as South African, we can assist the public protector. Meanwhile, accountability now has written to the Legal Practice Council calling from Kweban to be removed from the role of advocates something that one expert, Pierre Dufos, says it would be a huge blow for the public protector. 
It's actually really bad for the Public Protector's Office because um, if what's going to happen now, I'm almost certain, every time that the Public Protector uh, releases a report, the people implicated are going to point to this judgment and are going to say, well, how can you believe anything in the report? Because we know from the Constitutional Court judgment that the Public Protector um, is not a person that can be trusted. But Mkwebane is adamant there is nothing untoward with her investigations. Meanwhile, Chairperson of the Portfolio Committee on Justice, Bulelani Mangwaneshe, has told the SABC that the matter involving Kwebane will be attended to in the next parliamentary session. The DA submitted a request to the Speaker of Parliament to look into her fitness to hold office. Aymabongile Dumago in Johannesburg. Spotlight Africa, a program that showcases and highlights African countries and issues of the African continent and its people. Coming your way from Channel Africa every Wednesday at 800 hours UCT. With repeat on Wednesday at 2215 hours UCT through DSTV Bouquet 802. Tune in to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Ansul Ramaphosa has conceded that the ANC government has failed to reconfigure South Africa's economy to include all South Africans. He was speaking at the 25 Years of Democracy Conference underway at the University of Johannesburg. The two-day gathering has been called to reflect on the progress made and the challenges encountered since 1994. Ramaphosa also fielded questions from panelists that included academics and students, among others. A political correspondent in Deba Mugobo filed this report. While South Africa has made significant gains in ensuring political rights for all its citizens, President Cyril Ramaphosa has acknowledged that on the economic front the country has underperformed. He said although the ANC inherited a collapsed economy, not enough was done to restructure it to benefit the historically disadvantaged. As we succeeded in turning public finances around and putting the country on an improved growth path, We, however, did not pay attention to addressing the structure of our economy to ensure that all people of our country attain economic emancipation. Over the course of the last 25 years, we have thus been less successful in addressing the structural faults in our economy. Unemployment has increased over the last decade. Poverty levels have begun to rise again and millions of South Africans remain excluded through lack of assets. And with over 17 million on social grants and at least 5 million people benefiting from low-cost housing, the president said much has been done to improve the living conditions of the poor. The substantial investment we have made in economic and social infrastructure, in providing houses, water and electricity, in expanding access to education and health, has undoubtedly improved our people's lives. There are several indicators of social progress, from the growth in the size of the black middle class to an improvement in educational access, participation and attainment, from a massive improvement in access to basic services to a decline in levels of poverty. And academics weighed in, decrying the current state of the nation from a stagnant economy to high levels of poverty. Dr. Stembel Mbete from the University of Pretoria is the political class to get the basics right. We speak about the triple challenges, unemployment, inequality, poverty, and inherent in that, and you could hear it in the president's speech, is this assumption that fixing unemployment is going to deal with poverty, and it doesn't work like that. Poverty is multifaceted. It's not just about having somebody with a job. Poverty includes the shambles that our transport system is in. People spend an extraordinary amount of money, up to 70-80% of their wage, on getting to work. And that's something that government needs to be responsible for. When people say they want a 25% increase, a huge part of it is because they're trying to make up for the amount that just getting to work costs them. 
and in his response the president made assurances that government is listening. All those issues that you raise have to be addressed and you cite a very good example. It's not only getting a job, it's also about the transport. The transport costs, as you alluded to, are just too overbearing on many of our people. And that is why we've got to be addressing our public transport policy, but more importantly, our spatial development policy is another one. And we are going to be addressing that, and we want the minds of policymakers, as you say, at all levels, to be rewired so that we see how best uh, we can address this. The 25 years Democracy Conference ends on Wednesday. And President Ramaphosa said some of the outcomes will fit into the government 25-year review document, which will be released later this year. I am Tebu Mokobo in Johannesburg. Nigerian troops and police clashed on Tuesday with Shiite Muslim protesters in the capital, Abuja. The Shiite group marched in protest against the continued detention of its leaders, despite a court ruling that he be released. Islamic Movement of Nigeria members regularly take to the streets of Abuja to call for the release of Zagzaki, who has been in detention since 2015. Channel Africa's Colin Zatohengwe reports. We are Shites, all of them, everywhere on the streets of the central business district of Abuja protesting the continued detention of their leader, Ibrahim Erzazaki, who has been in custody since his arrest in December 2015. The Islamic movement of Nigeria, mainly Shiites, began their protests in the north-central state of Kaduna and gradually inched into Abuja, the federal capital, demanding the release of their leader, who is believed to be suffering from injuries sustained during his arrest in 2015. The Shiites, as they are commonly known, believe the order to attack and possibly kill them came from presidency, so they want to get to the seat of government and cry directly into the ears of President Buhari, even if they get killed doing so. Ibrahim and Sani are members of Shiite, the sect which had two weeks ago invaded the National Assembly and set vehicles ablaze after breaking down the first gate to gain access. It is the presidency that sent the military to kill us as they did in Zaire December 2015. Killing and other intimidation cannot make us stop what we are doing. If they, if they like, they should come and kill us. Yesterday as they killed, it encouraged more people to come down to Abuja. If they have bullets, they have grenades, they have everything to kill, we have chest to receive bullets. So they should come and shoot us. We have our chest to receive the bullets. It is under the order of the president what was committed by the Nigerian army was committed. So that is why we are here as citizens of Nigeria. With a new development, President Buhari summoned the Inspector General of Police, Muhammad Adamu, who later told journalists that the mandate from Mr. President is to protect all Nigerians. Specifically, we brief him on the incessant uh, act coming out of this group of people protesting here and there, and uh, we brief him on the fact that uh, we've been able to curtail their excesses and to let him understand that everything is under control. Uh, the president asks us to make sure we provide security for every citizen of this country and uh, not to leave any space that uh, some group of people will create a breakdown of law and order. So the charge by Mr. President is that we must provide security for every Nigerian. But what exactly could have given rise to this regular feature of protests by Shiites for almost four years now? Has the government overreacted by omission or commission? Clement Wonkwo, a human rights lawyer, says it's sad that government's failure to obey court order has given room to the current situation. I think it's only very sad that this matter has gotten to the point that it has. When they started, uh, everyone thought that um, the matter would go through the courts and would be resolved. And if courts have made orders, that people who have been charged the courts and have been granted bail would be released. Uh, there is due process uh, on all sides. Of course, there are concerns about where this is. Uh, but this for the country is very, very sad because the images going out of this country, especially seeing protests in the federal capital territory of Nigeria, all portrays significant instability in the country. And it, it portrays the government as being incapable of managing the security situation in this country. Uh, we know that the Shiites have a major concern, have a major grouse, uh, and we urge 
restraint on all sides so that uh, these deaths will not continue to recall. Getting within walking distance of the presidential villa Abuja and the attendant consequences was one of the daring moves that could have been avoided had the Shiites limited their protest to designated portion of the city. But even the indigenous people of Abuja are not happy at the incessant disturbances that the protest is causing them and they say it's getting out of hand and should be stopped forthwith. We, the indigenous of FCT, who have been peaceful in our conduct and behavior, we are no longer comfortable. The Shiite people are hereby advised, go back to where they are coming from, their headquarters. Shame as if we are in a dictatorship and courts are just there to be pawns in the hands of manipulation of the system. The protest took the lives of a 23-year-old journalist, Precious Owolabi, and the deputy commissioner of police in charge of operations in the federal capital territory among others though government has on number of times says it will obey the rule of the law whether that is being done is a different kettle of fish considering those who are in detention despite court orders granted them bail could it be a form of protective custody or a question of or let's keep the enemy close to us Whichever it may be, it should be remembered that even criminals have rights that must be respected, while the aggrieved must equally follow due process in the course of second justice. From Lagos, Nigeria, Ham Collins, Nosara Toengwe, for Channel Africa News. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the U.S. State Department imposes visa restrictions on Nigerians who it says were involved in trying to undermine democracy in Nigeria's presidential and parliamentary elections this year. Sudan's international partners call for a swift signing of the Constitutional Declaration and the launch of the civilian-led government that will implement political and economic reforms. And a riot erupts at a prison in Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé, where many people accused of of being separatist rebels from the Anglophone regions are being detained. Those are the stories making headlines. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. Malawi's former president, Bakili Muluzi, has invited organizers of post-election demonstrations for a dialogue to find a civil solution to political unrest. This follows continued protests aimed at forcing the Malawi Electoral Commission chairperson, Jane Ansa, to resign on claims that she declared President Peter Mutarika winner of the May 21st presidential polls fraudulently. George Mango reports from Blantyre. There are numerous opinions within the country on the voluntary spirit from former President Bakili Malozi to call for a dialogue meeting with organizers of the post-election demonstrations. The majority say the call is ill-timed, lacks basis because the invitation has only been sent to organizers of the protests. People feel Molozi could have invited all key people in this political unrest such as Mek Chairperson Jenny Ansar, President Peter Mutarika and opposition political party leaders who want a rerun of the polls. Molozi, who ruled Malawi between 1994 and 2004, wrote the Human Rights Defenders Coalition Chairperson Timothy Ntambo asking for a dialogue meeting to curl the situation that is crippling business operations. Luca Tembo is the spokesperson of the organization. The subject matter here is Dr. Jenner's to resign. Um, so any meaningful discussion or any meaningful negotiation, if at all that is the term, uh, but we understand it's just a meeting. Any meaningful meeting that would, uh, we would engage in would demand that the subject matter should be around the table. But if she doesn't avail herself, we will go and understand um, uh, what uh, the, former, uh, the former president is talking about. And we also put our issues on the table. But our demand remains that Jane Answer should resign. The former Malawi leader proposed to meet members of the Human Rights Defenders Coalition Tuesday this week. But in a letter dated July 22, 2019, to organizers of the protests, Malozi said, and I quote, 
Given the current volatile situation in the country, your call for the resignation of the chairperson of the Malawi Electoral Commission over the disputed electoral process and your subsequent call for mass demonstrations as a former head of state of this country, I am equally concerned about the current situation. I feel obliged and duty-bound that we find a civil solution to curtail the prevailing situation, initiate conversation and dialogue, end quote. While the former leader is calling for dialogue, the Malawi Human Rights Commission has called for suspension of demonstrations, citing scenes of violence the country has witnessed. Violent incidents, including arson, have marred all the post-election demonstrations conducted so far. The latest is the burning of offices for the main opposition Malawi Congress Party MCP in Blantyre. MCP officials allege that the ruling Democratic Progressive Party DPP is behind the torching of their offices. President of the main opposition Malawi Congress Party is Lazarus Chakwera. Malawi is a peaceful country with a peace-loving people. And if your hope in this attack is to destabilize the country, you have faith. Malawians are sick and tired of the thieving DPP government which has robbed them of their birthright and has lost all legitimacy to govern. And if your hope in this attack is to deem the ray of hope that the people see in Malay Congress Party for their deliverance, you have faith. The ruling Democratic Progressive Party spokesperson, Nicholas Dausi, rejects such arson claims. You are exactly that is DPP now. You have DPP do that. We are the victims. We are, our, our, the people are going around the houses searching for us. They are going door by door, being able to go around beating people, touching houses, or suspecting DPP sympathizers. How many people are going to turn around and say that? But the Malawi Human Rights Commission has expressed worry over the violence during the demonstrations while at the same time fighting the inactiveness of police officers to calm violent protesters in the country during the demonstrations. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. The World Health Organization has strongly recommended the use of the HIV drug Dolutegravir DTG as the preferred first-line and second-line treatment for all ages. This includes pregnant women and those of childbearing age. The organization gave the recommendation at the 10th IAS Conference on HIV Science in Mexico. According to WHO, DTG is a drug that is more effective easier to take and has fewer side effects than alternative drugs that are currently being used. Channel Africa's author Davis Sikopo reports from Mexico City. There has been great concern over the past one year after the HIV treatment drug called Dulectrevia or DTG in pregnant women was linked to neurotube defects or NTDs, serious birth defects of the brain and spine. Information emerged at the 2018 International AIDS Conference held in the Netherlands that the use of DTG in early pregnancy could be linked to neurotube defects, NTDs, in Botswana. As a result, some countries posed their plans to make DTG-based regimens their preferred first-line therapy, and the World Health Organization, WHO, issued a note of caution about the use of DTG by women of childbearing age as part of its interim guidelines recommending DTG as the preferred first and second line antiretroviral therapy for people living with HIV. The Botswana study analyzed more than 119,000 deliveries from August 2014 to April 2019, including nearly 1,700 among women who were taking DTG-based therapy around conception. But further, after research, it has been discovered that the risk in the prevalence of NTDs among women taking DTG 
is less than originally stated, as can now be confirmed by Mimi Raisina, a public health specialist in the Ministry of Health in Botswana. So in conclusion, we found a small increased NTD prevalence among infants born to HIV-positive mothers on DTG at conception compared to infants born to HIV-negative mothers. So even with a six-month study, um, and because of that, we had small numbers, and we had, because of those small numbers, we had wide confidence intervals. But what is important to note is that our data suggests that NTD risk with, with DTG exposure at conception remains less than 1%, which is consistent with the Zafamo study findings, which were reported in 2018. And I guess the next thing that we have to be thinking about is what does that mean, especially for Botswana? However, it has been established that no cases of NTDs were found in the same trial carried out in Brazil. It is by this that the World Health Organization, WHO, has issued updated recommendations on the drug and guidelines that reconfirm the recommendation to use the TG-containing regimens as their preferred option for first and second-line antiretroviral therapy, ART, across populations. The guideline development group also emphasized the need for ongoing monitoring of the risk of NTDs and the importance of supporting women's autonomy in decision-making and informed choices. Meg Doherty is coordinator of treatment and care in the Department of HIV, Hepatitis and STIs at the World Health Organization. Also with information that this could be actively taken up and accepted by community, there was a decision to make the dolutegravir as reconfirmed as our preferred first line, but also move it from a conditional recommendation to a strong recommendation. The guideline development group also emphasized the need for ongoing monitoring of the risk of neural tube defects and the importance of supporting women's autonomy in decision making, including the provision of information and opinions and options to help women make their best choice. These recommendations have just been issued at the ongoing 10th International AIDS Society Conference on HIV Science in Mexico. Arthur Debsiscopo reporting for Channel Africa in Mexico City, Mexico. The Egyptian Council for Regulation of Media and Information has urged media houses in Africa to sign a pact agreement that will enhance their cooperation and working together. The regulator believes the pact agreement will help media organizations design safety mechanisms for journalists assigned to cover stories in conflict zones and join hands in mobilizing resources for staff training and development. Media professionals from the continent, including South Africa, have converged in Cairo, Egypt, to debate some of the critical issues facing the media sector. Fennel Schumer has more from Cairo. 31 journalists and media experts from 28 African countries, including South Africa, are part of a dialogue currently underway in Cairo, Egypt. It is aimed at enhancing the role of the medium in supporting sustainable development in Africa. Delegates are engaging on a range of issues to urge them to expand their scope of coverage of critical news events and news incidents in the continent. This includes raising awareness on the spread of terrorism acts in the continent. Dr. Khalid Omaram from the Egyptian Regulation of Media and Information says the role of social media, fake news, and the infiltration of unregistered media groups needs to be addressed urgently. He says this will assist in preserving media ethics and freedom of speech. Omara has emphasized the need of signing a pact agreement by media groups to forge cooperation in areas of mutual interest. Until now, I didn't think that we have succeeded to find a resolution who can not to control, and this is not an Egyptian problem, it's a real problem because you cannot predict about them because there are many interferences. Language barrier also came under the spotlight. It is estimated that many journalists in African nations speak and write French as well as Arabic. Omara says there's a need for sufficient training for media professionals. But the language issue should not be seen as a problem. I think the language is a tool which can translate my idea or our idea 
to each other. It is good, but it must be understood by all the partners. And um, for us, the vast majority of the Egyptian people knew English. The French, at least 20% or 25% know French. But I think the language, so it is not a big problem. The language is not a big problem. Delegates believe such an agreement will go a long way in mobilizing resources to render necessary support and development for journalists. Linus Chatham is the acting chief executive officer of the Namibian Press Agency. Yes, the question of um, signing cooperation agreement across the different uh, national agencies of Africa is very crucial because it forms the basis of uh, exchange of experiences. You move towards uh, common perspectives on issues of um, ethics in uh, media and uh, journalism in large. So the more corporations along the national agencies in Africa, the better for laying this common understanding. Organized by the Egyptian Agency of Partnership for Development, the two-week dialogue has brought together senior media professionals who will at the end design a strategy to ensure cooperation and establishment of a common unit that will assist in dealing and addressing challenges facing the media industry in Africa. There's also a call for the licensing of journalists. Fanuel Schuma, SABC News, Cairo in Egypt. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Thanks, Balungila, and good morning. High-level trade talks between the United States and China are to begin next week, the first time since they broke down in May. The two countries have imposed wide-ranging tariffs on each other's goods since U.S. President Donald Trump launched a trade war. The International Monetary Fund has warned that tensions over trade are taking a toll on the global economy. The IMF has lowered its forecast for global growth this year and next, warning that more U.S.-China tariffs, auto-tariffs or a disorderly Brexit could further slow growth, weaken investment and disrupt supply chains. The BBC's Jonathan Joseph reports. These talks have been on the cards since President Trump and President Xi effectively agreed a ceasefire at the G20 summit at the end of June. Relations have improved since, with China again pledging to buy more U.S. agricultural products and Washington moving towards easing restrictions on the telecoms giant Huawei. The discussions in Shanghai likely to include U.S. demands for better protection of intellectual property rights and Beijing's insistence that Washington starts rolling back tariffs. Meanwhile, the U.S. Justice Department says it will open an antitrust review into whether market lending or rather leading, online platforms are stifling innovation and reducing competition. Tech giants such as Facebook, Google, Amazon and Apple are likely to be scrutinized in the wide-ranging probe. Google and Facebook now dominate online advertising as consumers use their smartphones to order food, watch films and socialize online. Meanwhile, the growing popularity of the online shopping has boosted the fortunes of firms such as Amazon. The BBC's Dave Lee reports. The Department of Justice hasn't specifically said which companies are under investigation, but it can be safely assumed Apple, Amazon, Facebook and Google will be the focus of their attention. The broad question is whether newcomers are truly able to compete against the scale and riches of the Silicon Valley giants. What will make these firms nervous is that the DOJ isn't looking at any specific allegation, but instead embarking on a look at how the companies came to power and what they've done to remain there. The tech companies insist they have viable competition. Products originating from Uganda will now freely access the Tanzanian market after the Tanzania Food and Drugs Authority changed to the Tanzania Bureau of Standards. Ugandan traders have been complaining that their certified products are required to go through another certification process when they get to Tanzania, affecting the traction 
or transaction rather, of business smoothly. Sentiments in the Namibian oil market have shifted in recent days as hedge funds, producers and traders start taking a more bearish attack in response to what they see as weakness in worldwide demand. The oil market has struggled to sustain a rally despite supply restrictions that generally would be considered bullish. U.S. sanctions on Venezuela and Iran have removed more than 1.5 million barrels of daily supply from the market. OPEC extended a supply cut deal into 2020 and the tensions between the United States and Iran are rising. The International Monetary Fund says it will promptly initiate the process of selecting the next managing director after Christine Lagarde announced a resignation from the IMF position with effect from September. Lagarde was nominated for the presidency of the European Central Bank two weeks ago as a part of the European Union leaders' agreement on the future leadership of top EU institutions. She then decided to temporarily step down from the IMF leadership during the nomination period. Lagarde says with greater clarity on the process, her nomination as ECB president and the time it will take, she has made this decision in the best interest of the fund. The US dollar is trading at 357.91 Nigerian Nara. 1043 Botswana Pula, 102.35 Kenyan Shilling, and 12.88 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 3.75 Brazilian roll, 63.13 Russian ruble, 68.88 Indian rupee, 6.87 Chinese yuan, and 13.89 to the South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 80 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold $1,420. Platinum, $854 pounds. So the price of Brent crude oil is at $63.98 a barrel. From an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, we begin with the netball news. South African Minister of Sports, Natim Teto, has called on netball to have a professional league in the near future. He said this last night at the press conference held in Johannesburg to welcome the Spa Proteas from the Netball World Cup in Liverpool in England. The Proteas did well to reach the semi-finals for the first time in 24 years. They finished fourth after losing to England in a bronze medals match. So few talk about number two love sport in the country, which is netball. And therefore, we, we, are, we are ready to look into the nuts and bolts of what it takes to have a professional league how do we ensure that uh, we realize that goal we realize that goal uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll again uh, pester our friends spa telecom and others Tohosan and everybody else that let's let's do it if the whole world is descending in south africa in 2023 let them find us ready Netball South Africa President Cecilia Mulukwane also highlighted the importance of a professional league if the country has to uh, compete against the best in the world. The moment they beat Jamaica, mm-hmm. that was the highlight of all of us. I mean, beating number two in the world, not having a professional league, like we don't have a professional league. When those girls, today I was with Jiva Mento, the, the goalkeeper of England, saying to me she's going to she plays in australia she says to me i'm going to australia i'm going back to australia to play that that's where some of our girls are erin was here she left today because she has to go to to australia to play the leagues in australia continue so most of our girls are playing in australia so the girls that are not at home they're all in australia playing their leagues because australia pays them we don't have a league like that in south africa 
we wish to have a league like that, that we can export and import players also and have a professional league that will take us to 2023. Because if we really want to win that cup in 2023, we have to have a professional league. Without that professional league, it will always be, we nearly beat them. We nearly beat them. We don't want we nearly beat them. We want we beat them. And we, we can. And on to swimming news, South African swimming sensation Chad Leclerc has booked his place in the final of the men's 200-meter butterfly at the FINA World Championships in Guangzhou, South Korea. A 27-year-old who won Olympic gold this event at the 2012 London Olympics when he stunned Michael Phelps finished second in the semifinal on, in a time of 1 minute 55.88 seconds and that was enough to put him fifth fastest overall. The final will take place on Friday. Meanwhile, another fellow South African swimmer, Tatiana Shoemaker, finished sixth, the final of the women's 100-meter breaststroke at the FINA World Championships in Guangzhou, South Korea, and Shoemaker posted a time of 1 minute 06.60 seconds. And Team South Africa haven't had much luck in the pool. And uh, the FINA World Championships, Eben Foster was 39th overall in the 200th individual medley, and June Kutse was very respectable at 20th in the 200th butterfly. And now, looking at the Olympics, International Olympic Committee's Coordination Committee Chief John Coates says Tokyo is full on, fully on track to deliver the compact 2020 Olympics it promised when it was awarded the rights to this, to this event six years ago. One year to go, all of the excitement is growing here. You've seen the unprecedented level of interest in ticket sales with 3.2 million sales having been tickets sold in the first phase. We're very pleased that the delivery of the Games remains firmly on track. The, um, we received key updates here on the venue construction and there's only three venues that... Um, remain to be completed. The Olympic Stadium is 90% complete. Um, it will be complete in November. The Ariake venue uh, is ready, will be ready in December 2019. And um, those are the measures that we've outlined here. That... And that's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawah. Kenyan finance minister pleads not guilty to 15 corruption charges and Malawi's former president offers to mediate between protesters and the electoral body. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutu Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info@channelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Are taking us to the top of the hour. For the news on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za is B1 with a song titled Perfecto.